The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord, Psalm 14, 2, has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, no, or not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. You may be seated. Lord, tonight we cry out to you for our nation, for the church around the world for all that is going on. Um, we are here with one heart to cry out to our God. Where we are weak, would you make us strong? Where we lack faith, would you increase our faith? Where we find ourselves sometimes uh, overwhelmed by life, would you fill us with hope and power? Would you baptize every person hearing the sound of my voice with boldness? And faith. And Lord, tonight, no matter what may be going on in our lives, may you refresh us with living water. Just the sweetness of your presence and the corporate worship that we experience is so wonderful and so good. And we bless your name tonight and we pray that whatever you want us to hear, as we open our hearts to you, may you speak, may we have ears to hear and hearts to respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name I pray, if you agree, would you say amen. Now you look at the heading of the psalm for a second, the top of the psalm. Many of the psalms have headings on them. If we know the author, for example, if we know the nature of the music that was there. And here we have a heading, notice it says, for the choir director, it's a psalm of David. So David is our author. Remember, we learned when we did the beginning introduction to the psalms that David has penned about half of the psalms that we know about. So David, this is King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. If you have a new King James, it addresses to the chief musician, and it's all capitalized. If you have a New American Standard or some of the other versions, it says, for the choir director. Who is the choir director? Is this Asaph? We don't know for sure, but there are some views that the choir director addressed here, as it relates to the King James, New King James especially, is God himself. That God is the ultimate choir director, which is an interesting thought. And for all musicians who have that kind of giftedness, it is interesting to think about that music actually originates from God. And there is a, a psalm that's actually quoted in the book of Hebrews. I think it's a psalm, and it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, which implies that God one day will sing over us. And it is interesting that after Jesus uh, broke bread and did the Last Supper with the apostles, they sang a hymn together. By the way, we don't have to wonder what they sang. They would have sang one of the Psalms, and most likely one of the Hallel Psalms, which are located in Psalms 113 through 118. So Jesus did sing. I would imagine he had a beautiful singing voice, and still does. And when things get quiet in here, and you guys break out into singing, it is wonderful to hear your voices as they rise to God. And whether you feel like you have, you know, not so great a singing voice or you feel like you do have a great one, I believe that there is a filter in heaven. I'm, I'm clinging to that because I am not the best singer. But I think that God rejoices in the praises of his people as much as he inhabits them, but I think he also, it brings him joy when we sing to him. And he touches us back. Isn't it a beautiful thing? Every time I sing to him, he touches, he touches me back in a special way. And, you know, I can be having a day, uh, like many of you, just kind of one of those stressful days where, you know, things are just happening and you're just kind of going with the flow. And whenever I just stop and pray and seek his face, man, everything changes in my life. That's what worship does for me. And I'm sure that's what it does for you. 
did uh, David address the chief musician that is God Almighty? I'll leave that up to you. I, I don't know if it's that significant, but uh, here you have the heading, you have the author, and you have the opening verse. The fool, Psalm 14, 1, has said in his heart, there is no God. The word for fool, if you're interested in Hebrew, is Nabal. It's N-A-B-A-L. And we'll talk about a man who actually went by that name, and we meet him in our Bibles. The Hebrew word for fool, Nabal, N-A-B-A-L, means one who is foolish, senseless, and wicked. The fool in Psalm 14, when the first two words there are often contrasted with the wise in the Bible. In fact, if you've read through Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, you see this contrast constantly. It says the wise man or the wise woman does this and the fool does that. And it's always a contrast. And by the way, in the Bible, the wise distinguished or contrasted from the fool does not really have much to do with mental ability or acumen or smarts, as it were. The fool in the Bible is one who tries to live his life in rebellion to God or her life in opposition to God or by denying God's existence. That's the fool in the Bible. The wise person in the Bible is the person who knows that they have all these shortcomings that we all know we have, but still tries to pursue God and live according to God's uh, law and his dictates and his plan. And so that's the contrast there. Here the fool is addressed, and the fool is a senseless person. One writer says the idea of the word is that of a man who has no sense or perception of ethical and religious claims. So it is not that they lack mental ability, but spiritual or moral sensitivity. They, they are not open to the things of the Spirit. They don't understand that they can't discern spiritual things. So David doesn't have in mind, says one writer, those who are not smart enough to figure out God. No one is that smart. He has in mind those who simply reject God. In the New King James, we can see the, from the italics that there is is added by the translators. And so literally what this person says in their heart, and almost like a mantra, is no God, no God, no God, no God. And I'm talking about N-O-G-O-D, capital G-O-D. There is no God. There is no God. It's a mantra. They have to keep telling themselves that to make them feel better. James Montgomery Boyce says, this is practical as well as theoretical atheism. Not only does he not believe in God, but he also acts on his conviction. And so he says there is no God so that he can live, she can live the way that they want to live. This is not an evidential conclusion, is what I'm saying. They haven't made this conclusion based upon the evidence that they see or don't see. This is a moral conviction, or a lack of morals, as it were. They want to do what they want to do. They want to live the way that they want to live. Therefore, they must say that there is no God. And it is interesting, when you've read some of the works of some of the modern atheists, most of them will not appeal to scientific evidence for their conclusions, but rather to moral freedom or a lack of morals. They want to do what they want to do. And so the easiest thing is to try to dismiss God. And that's what Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species, did for many people. They had something to hang their hat on. The fool says in his heart. Would you notice where he says it, where she says it? It's right in the heart. So... This, again, affirms that this is not an intellectual objection to the existence of God, but it is rather in the person's heart that they wish that God would simply go away for moral reasons. Jesus said it's out of the heart that things come out that defile a person. It's not what goes into the stomach and is eliminated that defiles a person. It's not unwashed hands or diet choices that defile a person. It's what comes out of a man which defiles a man. And Jesus was specific that it's what comes out of the heart. Now remember in Hebrew thought, and even moving into Greek thought, the heart is not your pumping organ, as incredible and miraculous as that is, but your heart is the center of you. It's where you make your decisions. It's the center of your mind, your emotions, your will, and your intellect. And it is right from the will of this person that they've decided to say, there is no God. I will not live in subjection to you 
or to your ways. Right in the heart, they make the decision. And so you can be assured that the Bible identifies this kind of decision-making as a heart issue. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it or who can know it? It's desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. And so it's not, this is not an issue of, I just don't have enough evidence to believe in God. The evidence is all around us. But this person has decided from their hearts that I don't want to follow God. So they must come up with a mantra, a saying, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Now I would contrast this person with someone who is a wrestling agnostic. An agnostic says, I just don't know if there's enough evidence. I'm still struggling with the question. I'm still checking out different views. I'm still reading books. Okay, you know, there's certainly wiggle room if you're, if you're at that point where you're an agnostic. And by the way, gnostic or gnosis is the word for knowledge in Greek. And the A before it cancels out the knowledge. So the person who is an agnostic just simply says, I don't know. I don't feel like I have enough information to know. And I've shared the gospel with people like that before. And they've said, I'm just not sure or I don't know if I'm ready. And, you know, I used to be in sales, so I was always a closer. Anybody else? Uh, anybody else a closer out there? I like to close the deal. But I've learned that I need to be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is moving. And though I want to plead with people to be right and reconciled to God, I still need to realize that some people, you know, if they were to pray the prayer on the spot with me, it may not be sincere. And that is certainly part of what we're after. Now, the fool, somebody might say, well, why would you, why would you categorize, David, somebody as a fool who says there's no God? Isn't that unfair? Isn't that uncharitable? I mean, what is the evidence? Well, let's turn over to Psalm 19 for a second, just a few pages to your right, and let's see something else that David said about the evidence that is out there. Psalm 19, familiar to many of you, it's also a psalm of David. And here's what David says. He says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, Psalm 19, 1. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Notice how often this happens. Day to day, those heavens pour forth speech. It's like it's poured out on humanity or, or poured down. Not only is, is it day to day, but it's also night to night that, that uh, those heavens reveal knowledge. There is no speech. There's no corner of the earth. There's, no, there's not some poor person living in the bush somewhere that can't have access to this general revelation, if you will. Nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout, through all the earth. Their utterances, what the heavens declare, to the end of the world. In them, he, God, has placed a tent for the sun. Now he gets into some specifics about these things that declare God's glory. The sun is one of them which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It is, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I was looking at a picture of the sun earlier today as in comparison to the moon and then to the earth. And to our naked eye, the sun appears to be about as big as the moon. But the reality is that the sun is many times bigger than the moon. But the difference is that the sun is farther away than the moon. So to our eye, they look similar in size, but they are not. In fact, I don't know what the number is, and I don't have it in front of me, but you could fit uh, so many Earths uh, within the, the diameter of the sun. It is remarkable how huge this ball of fire is and how it keeps burning, and how we're just the right distance away so that we're not fried, but we're also just the right distance away so that the earth doesn't completely freeze. And the more that astronomers and scientists study this stuff, the more they say there is a precision a, uh, to, the, to the way that the universe works and the distance of the earth from the sun and the moon that is so precise uh, sometimes the wording is used as the universe is fine-tuned. 
And it's just another declaration that there is a designer. Uh, let's turn over to Romans 1. And as you turn to Romans 1 in your New Testament, let me just say to you that this is, this is not as complex as sometimes we make it. The argument from uh, cosmology, called the cosmological argument, and there's also the teleological argument, um, just says, just take a look around. And it's not just looking up. It's also looking sideways to consider the brain, the eye. Romans 1 is what you want. The circulatory system. When a baby is born, you get cut and your body heals. You have fingers that you don't have to really think much about it, but your hand is cleverly designed. Your eyes, your sense of smell, your taste buds. You just start thinking about all of these things and just on a basic level, you, you just have to say, what? The argument is that this is a cosmic accident? And then you talk about the precision and the fine-tuning of the things that are created. And if you've ever seen a picture, and I know it's hard in Southern California, but if you've ever saw a picture of where all the, the stars in the sky seemingly can be seen, and there are billions and billions of stars just in our galaxy alone, not to mention the other galaxies that have been untapped. And somebody I read earlier said, just imagine the power it would take a being to create the sun and to hold everything together the way it has to be held together in our universe. And that's just what we know of the Milky Way galaxy. Our God is such a powerful, amazing being that it caused David to say, when I consider the, the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars, the things that you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take thought of him. And he goes on in that psalm to say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you made the sun, that fireball, you made the moon, you made the distant galaxies that we have not even tapped, why is it that you think of me? And Paul picks up this theme in terms of what is created in Romans 1 when he says these words, the wrath of God, 18, Romans 1, 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And many believe that Psalm 14 needs to be uh, have a reference to ungodliness as, as it cross-references or contrasts with godliness. The wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what do they do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I jokingly one time said, teaching through Romans, atheists have to take a truth suppressant every morning. It's almost like a cough suppressant. You, you take it every day so you can push away the reality of everything that's crying out and bombarding you day after day and night after night. Just from the physical creation alone. We'll get into the internal revelation in a moment. But just from what has been made, you have to take a truth suppressant. You literally have to push it away. R.C. Sproul gave this analogy. He said, if you've ever been in a pool before and you had a big beach ball and let's say you're batting it around with your friends and family... And you took that ball and you try to submerge it under the water. Inevitably, what happens? The ball pops back up, right? This is what truth does. It keeps popping back up. And you so, so you have to keep pushing it down. This is the Greek word for suppress. It literally means to push truth down or push it away. And that's what people have to do who deny God. They have to literally push it away and push it down. And that's why sometimes you get angry responses from people who say they say there's no God because you're a reminder to them that there is a God and they don't want to hear it. And when people tell you they don't want to hear it, it's because they're hearing it day after day and night after night. You see, they're already hearing it just from the physical creation alone. And we could go into plant life and aquatic life and many of the things that we could talk about right now. But here's what's happening. They're suppressing the truth. And notice how they do it. It's in unrighteousness. It's because they want to live an unrighteous life. Because, Romans 1.19, that which is known about God, it's not only external, brethren, it's evident, what's your Bible say? 
within them. For God, God is the one who did this, made it evident to them. In the very next chapter, in Romans 2, 14 and 15, it tells us that the law of God is written on human beings. Even Gentiles who do not have the law, they didn't have the oracles, they didn't get the Ten Commandments, the Jews got that. But they instinctively do, Romans 2, 14, the things of the law, not Having the law, they're a law to themselves in that they show, Romans 2.15, the work of the law written where? In their hearts and their conscience. That word conscience means with knowledge. Con is with, science is knowledge. So it's uh, the laws in their hearts and their conscience bears witness to that law and their thoughts alternately either accuse them when they don't keep it or defend them when they do keep it. Now these are the realities of what the Bible teaches about evidence for God, both external and internal. Psalm 19 gave us the external. And by the way, Psalm 19 goes on to talk about the law of the Lord. If you're familiar with that Psalm, which is a great second half, it's the world God made and then the word of God. And here we get back to Romans 1.20 Back to the creation, for since the creation of the world, the world was created, don't let anybody tell you different. God's invisible attributes, Romans 1.20, his eternal power, it takes a powerful being to make, you know, just a few things I mentioned, and we could go on about the size of stars and everything, and divine nature, so his attributes, his power, and his nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, there's creation again, so that they are without excuse, those who suppress the truth. For even though they knew God, they know there's a God, it's external and internal, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, you can read book upon book upon book about this, they became fools. They did a foolish exchange exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, humanism, and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, which you could say is idolatry. Therefore, in light of what they did, God, what did he do? He gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Here's the issue. Now, a person can be wrestling with things, back to Psalm 14. They can certainly, uh, you know, say, hey, I'd like to know more. But one thing I do know, and I want to give you this, so for all of you who at any time witness your faith, This is a little secret thing that you just keep in your pocket. The person you're talking to, no matter how militant an atheist they claim to be, already knows that there's a God. They already know. I just showed you the passage. They know it from external and internal evidence. In fact, God is the one who made it clear to them. And God's physical creation and his internal witness of the conscience bearing witness with the law of God. And even, I would add, Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit who would come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's the world, not Christians. That's conviction of the world. So the Holy Spirit also works somehow within the uh, conscience of a person, namely in the preaching of the gospel, but it also could be in moments of epiphanies, Some of you had epiphanies about the reality of a God before uh, there was even someone who preached the gospel to you. And there's been witness of people who in Muslim countries have dreams and visions about Jesus. There are, uh, there's evidence from tribes that, you know, they, they understood a creator just by the physical creation. So there's a lot we could say here. But here's the fundamental issue. This person has to keep saying in their heart, there's no God. They are the fool, according to Romans 14. For with the heart, Romans 10.10, man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
But this person has made up their mind to live as a practical atheist, not as a struggling agnostic. They say God and his law will have no bearing on my life. And as G. Campbell Morgan puts it, the word fool here stands for moral perversity rather than intellectual blindness. The story of Nabal, the Hebrew word for fool, is told in 1 Samuel 25. Nabal was married to a young woman, very attractive, named Abigail. If you were with us, it was a while ago that we studied through 1 Samuel. David and his men are out, and they're, uh, they want, David sends some men to go to Nabal um, to ask for provision. And Nabal essentially says, who is David that I should pay attention to giving you my stuff? Turns out that David and his men had kind of uh, formed a perimeter and protected uh, Nabal and his servants at the sheep shearing time. But Nabal didn't want to hear it, and he didn't want to feed David's men, and he would have nothing to do with it. So the, the men go back, and they say, hey, this, this fool, Nabal, and that's actually what his name means, uh, said, no luck, I ain't giving you anything. And David said, sharpen your swords, boys. It's time, it's time that we go pay this guy a visit. And they're en route, and remember, Abigail hears about it and stops him. She meets him in the middle, and she says, oh, that husband of mine, Nabal is his name, and he is a fool, and that's his game. David eventually says, I'm paraphrasing the story, but he eventually says, you know what? Today you saved your husband's life because I was going to go and I was going to give him the business and the business would have been probably that he would have lost his head. And Nabal was a fool. And I want you to see the picture. This is something that grabbed me as I went back and revisited the story of Nabal. Um, it's this. David is a type of Jesus Christ. He's the lesser David. Jesus is called the son of David. When David sent his messengers to the fool, Nabal, he essentially rejected David, who's a type of the anointed one or the Christ. Everybody with me? And today, this comes out when you as a messenger go to a person who says there's no God and is the fool. And that person says, I will have nothing to do with your Christ. I'm not going to pay any attention. This is lived out today. See, Nabal... The story of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25 just becomes a picture of the rejection of the greater David as we come with the message of the king and the fool says, no, I will not believe. There is no God. There is no God. There is no God. This is what they have to say. Now, if you're back in Psalm 14, just take a peek at one other psalm before it, which is Psalm 10. And take a look. It says Psalm 10, verse 3 as we get a little bit more about where this is headed. It says, For the wicked boasts in, of his heart's desire, the greedy man, Psalm 10.3, curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Thy judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. Think of Nabal. He says to himself, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Nabal ends up dying. By the way, David ends up marrying Abigail is how that story unfolds. And so in, back in Psalm 14, we get a little bit more of the direction of the psalm. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But look at just part B of verse 1. It says, they, that is the fool, are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. This is further evidence that the person saying there is no God does it on a moral basis or, as I mentioned, an immoral basis. That is, they want to do what they want to do, and so that's why they say there is no God, because there's corruption. There's abominable deeds. There's no good that they do. The word for corruption has the idea of soured milk. Maybe you've run into that person. They're a sour person. And it's not always easy to know what happened to somebody like this. Why are you so soured? Some people have had a bad experience in the church. Some people have had 
their heart broken a number of times. Um, there, there's many reasons, and that's why we always need to be sensitive to what we may see on the outside. May be, there may be something else going on. Remember, we've learned from Rabbi Zacharias to ask, uh, to be aware that be, behind every question, there's a questioner. There may be a reason why that person is angry or bitter. And sometimes there are people that you may meet that think they can't be forgiven. Some people say, I think I've just done too much evil and I'm not sure God would ever forgive me. And that's where we need to preach the hope of the gospel. And so this is a person who's become sour, degenerated into doing evil. They work wickedness and... This is the, the cause and effect in another sense. Does atheism result from folly or folly from atheism? Says one writer, it would be perfectly correct to say that each is the cause, is a cause and each is an effect. Here's McLaren. Practical denial or neglect of God's working in the world, his world, rather than a creed of negation is in the psalmist's mind. In effect, we say there is no God when we shut him up in a far-off heaven. Never think of him as concerned in our affairs. To strip him of his justice and rob him of his control is to be the part of a fool. For the biblical conception of folly is moral perversity rather than intellectual feebleness. And whoever is morally and religiously wrong cannot be, in reality, intellectually right. So people can, you know, they can do some good things, you could say, but at the core of this is a sin-tainted world, a world in rebellion to God. And, I, and I'll throw this out at the beginning, and I want to say it again at the end. For someone who says there is no God, someone can also say there is a God, and there have been people, and maybe you're one of them, who at one point in your life said, there is no God. And then you had a meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you said, there is a God. And he's been manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God, with us. Amen? So there's hope for all of us. And if you're watching right now, or you're here tonight, and you're in that category, there's no God, that can change. And you can be a spokesman who now tells people there is a God and he's been manifested in Jesus. And so the Lord, verse 2, looks down. He looked down from heaven, Psalm 14, 2, upon the sons of men. He's not disconnected from the world at all. To see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Now, verse 2 is what we call anthropomorphic terminology. Let me simply say that just means Something about God is put in human terms. God is omniscient, so he doesn't have to look down. He already knows what's going on. But this is a way for us to understand how this works. And here, the picture is painted as God looking down upon the sons of man to see if there's anybody who understands, anybody who has spiritual perception, anybody who seeks after God. Now, can you think, as you've read your Bible about some God-seekers who lived among a lot of people who would not seek God. Can you think of some names? Well, early in the Bible, there's a name that comes to mind for me. His name was Noah. The world was really in total rebellion to God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Another man that we studied and we went all through 42 chapters of the book of Job. Can I get a witness? And... His name is Job, and in the opening chapters, he's a very righteous man. He seeks God. He sacrifices to God just in case his kids do, did something wrong. And he's blameless, and God affirms that he's a blameless man. We can think about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. There are some God-fearers, but generally speaking, this picture paints a world in rebellion to God. Genesis 6.12 says, God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Only Noah and his family survived. When the Tower of Babel is being built in Genesis 11, write this down for your notes, 5 and 6. Again, we get anthropomorphic terminology. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower 
which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. The Lord didn't have to come down to see the tower. He knew what they were doing. That's the reason that the language is the way it is. He came down to see because he already knew. But some people believe that this is humor. They thought their tower was so large that it could have reached the heavens, and God looked from heaven and said, that's so small, i got to get a closer look at it. See, what we think is so gigantic. Think about the God that we described a few minutes ago, the one who holds the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies together. Do you think he's impressed if we build a high tower? I'm going to meet you, God. Just let me get up one more flight of stairs. <laughs> no, your puny little tower doesn't mean much. And so God often challenges the uh, onlooker, if you will. And he says, It is I who sit above the vault of the earth, Psalm, uh, Isaiah 40, 22. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they planted, scarcely have they sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he, he merely blows on them and they wither. The storm carries them away like stubble. To whom you will, will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One. Look up, take a look at the stars if you can count them. I call every one of them by name. Our God is an awesome God. Amen. And this is why we worship. Because our God is worthy of our worship. This is how we connect with him. This is how we find life. And that more abundantly. But these in Psalm 14 have all turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now some of you may say, but wait a minute. I want to challenge that because I know there are people who are not Christians who do good. And I would agree with you. There are people who can do some good. But I think if we walk this out for a moment... We'll see a couple things. Number one, we got to keep in mind who's being addressed here in Psalm 14. It's the fool who's decided in his heart that there's no God. But there's another matter here that we need to pursue, and here's the matter. Nobody is intrinsically good. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. Jesus said there's no one intrinsically good but God alone. By the way, he wasn't denying his deity. He was simply saying, if you're going to call me good, then do you realize that I'm God? And remember, he began to address the young man with this question. You know the commandments. He rattled off a few of them. And the young man said, oh, I've kept those from the time I was very young. Okay. Well, there's only one thing that you lack. Go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have eternal life. Oh, the young man wasn't so excited about the interchange anymore because he had lots of Cadillacs and Mercedes and back in the day, chariots. And his face fell and he walked away sorrowfully. What Thing must I do to inherit eternal life? I gotta know, I gotta know, I gotta know. Okay, you wanna know? Go and get rid of your God that you put before me. You think you keep the commandments? You don't keep the commandments. Money is your God. And if you will lay down your God and follow the true God, then you'll have this eternal life that you want. And I'll give you blessings that you cannot imagine. But the man's face fell. And I remember being at a men's Bible study. And one of the guys said, and you know, Pastor Michael, Jesus didn't chase him. He didn't say, oh, please come back. Please, oh, please, oh, please. He said, how difficult is it for a rich man to inherit eternal life? See? You see, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? 
Not because money in and of itself is evil. Money is neutral. It's simply a means of exchange. The problem isn't money. It's the love of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil. It's not money. It's the love of money. It's to love money more than you love God. And this goes nicely with what we're pursuing in the psalm. Because these individuals have said, no, God will not be my God. Other things will be my God. And of course, in Romans chapter 3, any of you are familiar that Paul quotes these verses, sweeping statements of all humanity being under sin, condemned, not doing good, because we all fall short of the glory of God. <laughs> the good that I would, I, I often don't do, Romans 7. Just when I think I have a little bit of Christianity figured out, I see my wicked heart. Just when I feel like, man, I, my prayer life's where it needs to be, then it ain't where it needs to be. The good that I know to do, I often don't do. And James says that is the sin of omission. Amen? You can amen on hard truth. It's okay. It's a good time for an amen. amen. Often I, I say, I should have done that. Or sometimes right in the moment, I should be doing that. I should go over there. I should witness to that person. I should, I should, but I don't want to. Nope. Ever done that? Ever just made up your mind you ain't going to do it? No matter, even if you sense that the Holy Spirit might be nudging you, like, no, I don't got time. <laughs> I, got, I got places to go and people to see and business to do and food to eat. I've been eight in two and a half hours. I mean, come on, Lord. <laughs> do all the workers of wickedness, Psalm 14, 4, not know? Do they have no knowledge? Notice it gets worse. They eat up who eat up my people as they eat bread and don't call upon the Lord. Now the psalm shifts into how they treat God's people. They are devoid of God, thus devoid of good, and they take it out on God's people, almost treating God's people with disdain, eating them up. As if they were eating their morning toast. Those Christians are the problem. Let's get rid of them. Chomp, chomp, chomp. You know, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan's been demanding permission that he might sift you as wheat. He wants to drink you down. You know, the, the language that says the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour that word for devour there in Greek literally means to, he wants to eat you for lunch. He wants to gulp you down. He wants you to be his morning toast. And this is what's going on here. And you say, well, why? Why would someone, Psalm 14, one who says there's no God, even care about the Christian and want to eat us like their morning toast? Here's why. Because you... Remind them of him. And they don't like that. You ever gone into a place and they already know that you're Holy Joe and it's Easter and they don't want you talking about Jesus. Christmas, you don't, they don't want you talking about Jesus. And they, they lay down the rules at the door. We will not be talking about that, Jesus. It's Christmas. <laughs> oh, we're not going to be talking about Jesus. It's Easter. And we're not going to be praying. Okay? Or sometimes they'll let a prayer slide in. That's where you get the little kid to pray, you know. They start thanking Jesus for napkins and, you know, little lambs. And... Or if you get the chance to pray, Greg Laurie likes to joke, just turn it into a gospel invitation in your prayer. And Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and I know there is, open your eye, wink at that one person. They don't have their eyes closed anyway. They prefer not being reminded of him because they already say there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. And you come in and say, by the way, there is a God. He's been manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you repent of your sin and receive him, you can have hope. What do you mean? 
And you think, why do they react that way? Because all day long they've been trying to push it away, push that ball under the water. There is no God. There is no God. <laughs> Knowledge within, from without, from within, from without, day and night, night and day. The music can't get loud enough. And then you come in telling them about this God that they keep trying to wish away. Is it any wonder why there's Christian persecution? <laughs> Four, or look at uh, final few verses now. There, five uh, in Psalm 14, they are in great dread. Now here's a little secret about them. Even though they persecute and want to eat you up, they're in great dread for God is with the righteous generation or he's with his people. Do you know militant unbelievers are afraid every single day? You know what they're afraid of? A couple things I know for sure. One, they're afraid to die because the fear of death enslaves them, Hebrews 2. Two, they're afraid of God because they know he exists, but they've been pushing him away their whole lives. You want to talk about a few major fears that will bum out your soul? How about if you try to deny God's existence when his fingerprints are everywhere, within and without? And that you know you have a date with death and there's nothing you can do about it. That would cause me to be afraid. And so here, they're in great dread. And, and this is another thing you need to know when you're witnessing is just be assured. If someone tells you, I'm not afraid to die. Uh, I got no problem with death. It's just a circle of life. Woody Allen spoke for a lot of people when he said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. Some translations say the poor. You want to shame my people? When, when they bear witness to me, when they worship me, here's what you need to know. The Lord is his refuge. And this is what we need to know. God is with us when we're trying to worship him and witness in his world. And finally, a cry at the end of the psalm. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. See the word salvation in verse 7? That's the Hebrew word, Yeshua. And I think just about every time you see salvation in the Hebrew scriptures, it will be the word Yeshua. By the way, that's Jesus' name. Jesus' name means salvation. That's why they named him Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew. In Greek, it's Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And here's the beauty of how the bookend comes now. Salvation is from the Lord, and it comes through Yeshua, Jesus, and someone who their whole life said there is no God, there is no God, can have an epiphany and say there is a God. Can I give you a few names? C.S. Lewis, a man who was a, you could call him a devout atheist, who had an awakening and met the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the guy that wrote the, uh, the, the modern books? Um, say it again. Oh, it's, there's another guy, and his name escapes me at the moment. The newspaper reporter. Lee Strobel, thank you. Um, again, you know, his, his story was told in film and in a book, and what was he doing? He was an alcoholic. His wife became a Christian. He was angry. And he started examining the evidence as a newspaper reporter, and he went from there is no God, there is no God, to there is a God. And he's manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, and the Lord has used that guy all around the world. Amen? That's what he does. So there's hope for all of us. Even if tonight, you came in tonight saying, there's no God. There is a God. He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. 
The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Father, thank you for tonight and this time in Psalm 14. Thank you for your living word. Thank you for how applicable it is for us. Uh, this psalm has been around for thousands of years, but it's still uh, as relevant today as it was when David penned it. And even though the, I don't think the captivity here is Babylonian captivity, I just think it's whenever your people are in trouble, whenever they're, they're wrestling, they can realize that Yeshua came to save us. Salvation has been realized in Jesus. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met him, just say, Jesus, I believe you're God. Thank you for coming into the world. Thank you for dying on that terrible cross. Thank you for rising to defeat death. I'm afraid of it. I don't want to die. But if I have the hope of the resurrection, and you prove that to be true by your own resurrection, I can have hope. I can live my life with confidence and joy. I can know why I'm here and where I'm going. Oh, this changes everything. Just reach out to him, the hand of faith. He'll grab hold of you. He'll save you. He'll wash you off. He'll give you a new start right now. And even if you've been a prodigal and maybe you went away and maybe you confessed faith at one point and you started telling people you're an atheist, there's hope for you. Come back home. God waits for you as a father waits for a wayward child. Thank you, Lord. You are so good. So faithful, so loving, so true. And we just want to worship you tonight. And in these closing moments, when we have a chance to, to express our heart of gratitude for this amazing God who loved us so much, we give you thanks, we give you praise, and we ask that you just fill us with fresh passion and zeal and love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?